I'm delighted that you're here this morning, and I hope you've brought your Bible with you, as always. And I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is a short chapter of 14 verses, and yet is a chapter that is packed full of wonderful information that will help us as the people of God. In this chapter, we see what faith ought to be. In other words, faith's goal. What's our goal? In life. What, what are we shooting for? What do we want to do with our faith? What do we want to accomplish with our faith? What should our faith be? What is your faith like? So the goal of your faith is dealt with in this chapter. This chapter also deals what's in place to help us with our faith. In other words, friends to our faith. Things that will help us with our faith. In other words, we're not alone. There is some help that comes to make our faith what it ought to be. Help us reach the goal of our faith. This chapter also deals with what hinders our progress. In other words, the foe to our faith. In other words, it's not just that we're living in some bubble that there is no forces against us, but there are forces against us. Things that are working against our faith and hindering the progress to our goal of our faith. And that's what this chapter deals with. Now, let's read the chapter and all 14 verses. It's a short chapter. And having done that, then we'll come back and look at what we learn from this chapter. Start with verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort him, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that, at the same, that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Balsavanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you 
all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's talk a little while about the friend and foe of the faith. Let's talk about our faith and what our faith should be and the friend to our faith and the foe to our faith. Now keep in mind, 1 Peter 5 is setting in the context of a book that talks about being holy in all of our conduct. Let's go back to chapter 1, perhaps, from previous studies. In our Bible classes, you have mar marginal notes or some notations somewhere that the theme of the book is about being holy in all of our conduct. So let's go to chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, and see this thought. For as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Every chapter relates to that concept of being holy in all of your conduct, not just in some, not just in your worship life, not just in your personal godliness, but in all areas of life, in all of your conduct, be holy. Chapter 5 fits with that theme. So let's start with the goal of our faith. We're talking about the goal. What should our faith be? What are we trying to accomplish with our faith? What do we want to do with our faith? And so let's see, first of all, what faith ought to be. Verses 9 and 10 tells us that our faith ought to be strong and ought to be settled. Rather than being weak and unsettled. You know people that are weak in their faith. Not weak in the sense of Romans 14, a weak conscience. But we're talking about being weak in their faith. Their faith is not strong at all. It will not stand up under the winds of time. There are those whose, whose faith is not settled. It is movable. It, 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 it doesn't have roots. But rather our goal is to have a strong faith and a settled faith. Let's read verses 9 and 10. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 9 now, resist him steadfast, pay attention to that word, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings you have experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ after you've suffered a while, perfect, <clears throat> establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now let's talk about some of the words we find here. First of all, we're to resist him steadfast, the text says. So one of the things that we're go shooting for in the goal of our faith is we want to be steadfast. What does that mean? It means to be solid. It means to be firm, <clears throat> to be stable. That same word that's translated steadfast at verse 9 is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 19, having this solid foundation. Here is a foundation that's solid. You don't want a weak foundation. You don't want a crumbly foundation. You want a solid foundation. That word solid is the same word as steadfast. Resist him solid, resist him firm, stable. It is translated concerning uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, talks about solid food in contrast to the milk. Same word solid. Again, here's the firmness. It's stable, it's firm. So we're to be steadfast in our faith. What does that mean? It means that we're to be firm in our faith, solid like a solid foundation with reference to our faith. But he goes further at verse 10 saying that after you have suffered for a while through the persecution, by the way, this is in the context of suffering persecution. 
after you have suffered, this suffering is going to help you accomplish this. When you get through with that, may God make you perfect. Now that's not flawless. You say, well, I can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. I don't know of anyone who is perfect. It's not talking about flawlessness. It has to do with the idea of completion. Complete or to be thorough. It is the same word that's used of mending the nets where the disciples were washing their nets and mending their nets. It means to make whole again, to repair. So as in taking that net that has a hole or a tear, you mend and you make it whole. You make it complete. You put it back where it was. There may be a tear in it, but now you put it back. It's the idea of completion. So may your faith be the kind of faith that is complete and it's thorough and repairing the holes within your faith. You ever find that there are times that there's some holes and some tears like in your spiritual net that it needs to be repaired? Well, I need to fix that. I need to, I need to fix that hole. I need to tear that, fix that tear or that rip. Putting it back together and mending that which was whole once before. The next word that's used here in verse 10, may he establish you that we need to be established. What's the idea of being established? It's the idea to turn resolutely in a certain direction and sit fast in that direction. It is the idea of being supporting and making firm that which would easily totter. If you can imagine trying to stand something up in the wind that's going to easily be blown over, you may set it firm. You may put some guide wires down. You may stabilize it somehow so that it doesn't totter. And so we need to do that with our faith. I want my faith to be established. I want it to be set in a certain direction. I want it to be set fast so that the winds don't blow it. So that it doesn't totter anymore. So the winds of change don't change directions of my faith. Now let's go further. The next word he uses at verse 10 is he's to be strengthened. What is the idea of being strengthened? The idea of being strengthened is to confirm, to make strong against attack. And so here may be where Satan's attack, as we've been talking in our studies in Revelation. Or we see here in this context, Satan is seeking whom he may devour. And so I want to be strengthened, I want to be confirmed, I want to be strong against an attack. Satan can attack, but I'm strong. I want my faith to be strong against the attacks of Satan. Whatever tools he may use, I want to be prepared for that. But furthermore, he mentions this word settled, the idea of being settled. It means to make stable. It means to lay a basis for. So here is the idea of the goal of your faith. You say, I want my faith to be strong and settled. Well, this context pictures when you're trying to live holy in all of your conduct, you want your faith to be steadfast, solid, stable. You want it to be complete, repaired. You want it to be established. You want it to be strengthened and you want it to be settled. In other words, this is a picture of a strong Christian who is rooted and grounded not every Christian is rooted and have deep roots so that their faith is strong. Not all Christians are well grounded in the faith. So that when the winds of change come, they go along with the wind. When pressure comes on, they crumble under the pressure. They totter. They fall. So what's the goal of my faith? I want my faith to be steadfast. I want it to be perfect. I want it to be established and strengthened and settled. In other words, I want to be a strong Christian. That's the goal of my faith. But that's not the only goal. The goal is ultimately to go to heaven. Notice four times, three times rather in this context, he mentions about going to heaven. He mentions about the hope that we have. Now we'll see more about that hope in just a moment. But let's look, notice at verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort him, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. There is glory to be revealed that we want to receive. Look at verse 4. When Christ the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So here is a crown that doesn't fade away. The crown of glory, the crown that doesn't fade away, the glory that should be revealed. Drop down now one more time to verse 10. May the God of all grace, uh, who called us to his eternal glory. We've been called to an eternal home. You say, what's, what's the goal that I have with my faith? My goal is to have, be a strong person, to have strong and settled faith, and ultimately to go to heaven. Now verse 11. Our goal should be that we're trying to bring glory to God. Look at verse 11. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And actually that's the end of the book because the rest of it is his signature off. So what have I seen so far? You say, I've been reading 1 Peter 5. I want to know what my goal of my faith is. What do I want my faith to be? I want it to be strong. I want it to be settled. I want to go to heaven and I want to glorify God. That's the goal of every child of God. Now let's talk about the foe to that goal, the foe to that faith. What are some things that work against us trying to keep us from accomplishing our goal? If we didn't have any, any foe, if we didn't have any enemy, if we didn't have any problems, this would be an easy task. I'm going to be strong, I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to, to praise God. I'm going to bring glory to the name of God. But they are foes. So what is it that hinders our progress? Well, first of all, he mentions pride. You say, well, I thought he mentioned Satan. Yeah, he's going to, we'll get to that. But before we get to, to that, there's the problem, first of all, with ourself. Sometimes our worst enemy is ourself. You say, well, who's working against me? Who is it that's working in the forces against me trying to destroy my faith? Sometimes it's ourselves. We're destroying our own faith. Why am I not stronger? It because I'm working against myself. Well, if I don't make it to heaven, why am I not going to make it to heaven? It's because I'm working against myself. So let's mention pride. Talk about pride. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders, and all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. What is the idea of this pride? God resists the proud. Strong says... That it simply means appearing above others. Not always does that manifest itself with a haughty spirit where I boast of myself of being above others. I may do that in other ways than trying to boast of myself. We'll see more about that in a moment. What this text is telling me is that our own pride gets in our way and hinders our faith. Our own pride gets in our own. The way we view ourselves and the thought of ourselves. The promotion of my own wishes and my own desires gets in my way of my faith growing and being settled. So the text says at verse 5 to be humble. He says, submit yourselves one to another and be clothed with humility for God gives grace to the humble. Now let's talk about humility. This context tells me something of the degree of humility which I am to have. In other words, the text is not saying, trying to flavor your, your, uh, your conversation with some doses of humility. Come across to your friends and neighbors as if you're humble. So kind of flavor your life with humility. You may not be humble, but make it look like you're humble. That's not what the text is saying. 
Let's go to verse 5. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, be clothed with humility. The idea of the word clothed means literally to tie on as tying on a garment. So I'm to be clothed with humility. I'm to be covered with humility. Perhaps Peter's thinking of the scene in John 13 where Peter was there when the Lord stood up from the, from the supper and girded himself with a, with a servant's apron and served his disciples. What a statement of humility. So gird yourself or clothe yourself with humility. Be completely covered with humility. The degree is I am to put on as if I have a servant's apron. And I'm ready to serve others. I'm submitting to others. That's what verse 5, that's the context of verse 5. So I learned something of the degree. Here's something else I learned. I learned what having humility means we do. You serve and you respect others. Look at verse 5. He said, likewise you younger submit to your elders... And all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. There is a connection with being clothed with humility and submitting yourselves one to another. Now what's the idea of submitting yourself one to another? Not in the same sense in which we may submit to those in authority or we may submit to the leadership of elders. It's not saying you submit to everybody in any wish that they desire that you do. You submit. It is the idea of submitting in service to them. You serve them. So what does humility mean? I do. It means I serve others and I have respect for others. So show me someone who really doesn't have a respect for another person, maybe a fellow Christian or some, fa they don't respect them. It's a person who may be lacking in humility. But furthermore, what else do I learn from this context? The reason I am to be humble is because of God's response. So be clothed with humility for, what do you mean for? Here's the reason. Here's the reason. The reason is because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God's, God's response to this, how you, how you view yourself, this, this matter of pride. God resists those who are proud and he gives grace. He blesses the humble and he condemns those who are proud. That's why. Now, how do I do that? You say, I, I, need, I need a dose of humility and so I, I need some of that. How do I do that? How, how, how do I do this? Look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Realize how small I am before God. Realize the greatness of God in contrast to the insignificance of man and that I'm humbling myself to the mighty hand of God. I recognize he's in power. He is our judge, verse 5. And consequently, I then should humble myself. Now, let's talk about another foe. So first of all, we're, we're our own worst enemy. But secondly, behind all of that is Satan and the devil himself. So verse, verses 89, perhaps one of the more notable verses as we study this that we remember and we've quoted as kids and we learned in Bible class. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We'll come back to verse 9 here in a moment. So the text is saying that we have an adversary, Satan himself. The devil, our enemy. He is described as our adversary. That's, an, that's the word for an opponent in a lawsuit. It's the idea that he's not just someone that may not be helpful to us. He is against us. If you go to court and you have an opponent, you have an opponent in a lawsuit, that means they are against you. 
They're not your friend. They're not there to help you. They're not just there to coexist with you. They are your enemy. He is our adversary. He is roaring like a lion. That means he's fierce. And furthermore, he's like a lion who stalks and destroys. And notice this idea of walking about means he's walking to and fro in the earth like we saw in Job chapter 1 with restless energy seeking whom he may destroy. He's walking about looking for someone that he can pounce on and he can destroy and will use every angle to do that. We're going to see more about that in a moment. So what am I learning from this? I'm learning that the devil is set to destroy you and hit you from every side. Let's go to chapter 1 and verse 6. Now this is at the end of the book. Five chapters only. I recognize it's a short book. But at the end of the book he says, Satan is walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, how is he doing that? Look at verse 6. Notice he said, In this be, uh, you greatly rejoice that now for a little while, if need be, you're grieved by various trials. Your translation may say manifold trials, many faceted, many ports. In other words, Satan's going to hit you from every angle and every side. In other words, Satan doesn't just have one tool and he's going to try to, to, to tempt you through one angle. If that doesn't work, he's going to come from this angle. And if that doesn't work, he's going to come from this angle. And if that doesn't work, he's going to try another aspect of that angle he used before. He has many tools. He has wiles, Ephesians 6 and verse 1, schemes. So he's going to hit you from every side. You say, I see people who are battling with Satan and maybe it's drunkenness and I, I'm, never, I'm never tempted with that. Well, he's going to hit you from another angle. He may be hitting you with pride. And you say, well, I see people that are proud. I'm not proud. Well, then he's going to hit you from another angle. It may be gossip. You say, well, I don't gossip. Well, he's going to hit you then from another angle. He may be hitting you from the standpoint of temptation to lust. And you say, well, I don't do that. Well, then he's going to hit you with another angle, and it may be dissension. You see, he's got many tools in his belt. He's going to hit you from many sides. Manifold. Those of you who are mechanics know what a manifold is. Many faceted, many ports. Manifold. Many faceted tools. Now then, let's go further. Let's see what verse 9 says we do about that. What do you do about that? Well, verse 9 says that we resist him. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, they, I, you say, well, wait a minute. I got this picture from chapter 1. He's going to hit me from every angle and every side. He may hit me from the front and then from the back and then from the side. And when I get the back door seen to over here where he's coming in, then next thing I know he's coming through the front door and I go secure it and he's coming through the side door. Now, I know he's coming from every angle. What do I do? What do I do? Look at verse 9. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. You see that strong faith, it's my goal. Settled and established. That's firm, that's solid. Is part of how I resist him. I resist him. That means he can be and he must be resisted. Now then, notice verse 8. Verse 8 says, be sober, be vigilant. Be sober, be vigilant. So what am I learning from being sober and being vigilant? The New King James, which I'm using, says be sober, be vigilant. The English standard says be sober-minded and be watchful. The New Century says control yourself and be careful. The New American Standard says be sober, be of a sober spirit 
and be on alert. I like the Holman Christian says, be serious and be alert. The New Revised Standard says, discipline yourselves and keep alert. What am I learning? Verse 8a, eight, eight, when he says the idea of being sober, it's the idea of being serious-minded. We're going to say more about soberness in a moment. Be serious in your approach to life. Be level-headed in your approach to life. Have a calm spirit as you approach life. So what am I, what, how am I to, to deal with this, this foe against my faith? He's trying to destroy my faith. How serious are you about serving God? Are you sober-minded? Do you take Christianity serious? Are you calm? Are you alerted? Are you being careful, being watchful? It's the idea of watchful, not just that I'm watching out for them, but I'm very careful. I'm, I'm alerted to the danger. I'm alerted to danger over here, and then I see him over here, and I see the avenue which he may tempt me there and over here. I'm being very careful. Let's go to verse 9 now. Here's something I'm learning from verse 9. Verse 9 says we're not alone. In other words, Satan is not just targeting you. And he's the only one, I'm, nobody else is facing this but me. I'm, I'm facing all these temptations, trials and tribulations and nobody, no, 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 no. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The context of suffering. You're not the only one going through this. You're not the only one he's after. You're not the only one he's tempting. We'll see more about those in just a moment. Now I know the goal of my faith and I know there's foes to my faith. I'm my own worst enemy. And then Satan is out to destroy me. You see, I wish I had some, some help with this. And we do. And that's the friend of faith. What's in place to help? Well, first of all, the st chapter starts on the note of elders. It's in the context of dealing with elders. He said, the elders who are among you I exhort. Come also a fellow elder, he said. So what does he tell them? Well, he says, first of all, here's what elders do. Elders feed us. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. King James says, feed the flock of God which is among you. They may not do all the actual teaching, but they're seeing that it's done. So elders are to feed. And so if most of the sheep have gone astray because they weren't fed properly, who's at fault? It's the elders didn't do their job of feeding the flock. Now, let's footnote here. Let's stop and we'll come back to 1 Peter 5. Let's, let's jump in our minds. I'm not going to the text, but jump in your mind over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 deals with qualifications of elders, you say. Well, it does. But the book of Titus is about being sound in the faith. You say, well, okay, then, then what's this thing about elders? Yes, it deals with qualifications, but the point in Titus 1 is elders are put in place to help guard and protect your sound faith. That's their role. Now, they have to meet these qualifications, but the point is not merely the qualifications. It's that elders are there to guard and protect your sound faith. So in this context, dealing with suffering, in the context of suffering and persecution, leadership and guidance is needed. Proper teaching is needed. So he said, I wish I had some help to help me with my faith. Elders are supposed to be in place to feed us and secondly to oversee us. Look at verse 9, taking the oversight, serving as overseers. 
In other words, they make decisions about the direction of how things are going and what's to be done that furthers the faith and strengthens the faith. This footnote again. If this were in written form, this would be down in a footnote. Be very careful when you make a decision. I want to go and move to another city and I want to find a church. And here's one that's close by. They have a nice building, a lot of young people. And that's where I want to go. Make sure the elders are doing their job because what they do have a whole lot to do with your faith. Staying strong. So talk to the elders when you go there and when you think about placing membership and ask them what their decisions are and how they do their decisions and what they're going to do with this circumstance. Ask them a lot of questions. They want to hear those questions because they'll have some for you if they're doing their job. Because what they do has a whole lot to do with whether your faith stays strong or not. So they feed us and they oversee us and furthermore they show us. Verse 3. They serve as an example not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See, there's the importance of having an eldership. The importance of having an eldership is they make sure we're fed, they oversee us, and they show us the way. That's a friend to your faith. That's a friend to your faith. Have you ever known of churches that, that things went south and they were spiraling downward because there wasn't any real leadership? There's no leadership. Maybe they didn't have elders, but there's no leadership Period. Things are spiraling downward. Shouldn't be that way. Here are elders here or four of eight. But furthermore, verse 5, there are fellow Christians that help us. You're not in this alone. There are others that are helping you. Look at verse, verse, verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. There's a sense in which I submit to you, you submit to me. I submit to her, she submits to him, he submits to her. In what sense? In service. We, we help one another. Like Galatians 6 and verse 1, when, when one is overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, not just elders, but ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So we help one another. We have fellow Christians to help us. So when someone comes up to you and says, oh, I'd like to ask you about you not being here last Sunday. They're trying to help you with your goal of your faith. And when someone calls you and says, I, I, I missed you at services, I, I, I wish you'd, you'd have been there, and, and can you, I'd like to encourage you to do a little better, they're trying to be a friend to your faith. And when someone, fellow Christian, comes to you and, and says, I'd like to talk to you about something I know you're doing that I, I, I'd like to tell you why I think that's wrong, they're trying to be a friend to you in your faith. But that's not all. Verse 7, God is there to help us. You see, we have more friends than we have foes. And our friends are stronger than our foe. You say, I know these elders, they're not as strong as, as Satan. You're right. And these fellow Christians, they're not as strong as Satan. No, you're right. But God is stronger than Satan. I know that. So look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, casting your care on him. The American standard says, your anxiety, for he cares for you. In, in trying to live your, the Christian life and, and in trying to develop your faith and make your faith what it ought to be and reach your goal, do you ever get filled with anxiety? And you're worried about things that maybe don't even really matter anyway, but it's getting in the way of your faith. Maybe you're worrying about material things and it's getting in the way of your faith. 
Maybe you're worried about health and it's getting in the way of your faith and you're worried about family and it's getting in the way of your faith. Go to verse 7 again. What do you do with those worries and those anxieties? Cast your cares upon Him. You can't carry the burden yourself because it's getting in the way of your faith. Cast them upon Him because He cares about you. As Hamilton said at this point, it says it matters to God what happens to Christians. God cares about what's going on in your life. God, it matters to God what's going on with you. So cast your cares upon him. He'll help through the problems. And let him care, deal with that problem. Let him deal with that issue. Because you don't know the answer. You say, but I'm I'm worried about the circumstance. Do you know what to do? No, I don't know what to do. Then cast your cares upon him and, and let God deal with that. But that's not all. You can help yourself. Elders are there to help you. Fellow Christians are there to help you. God helps you. But you can help yourself. You see, some people's faith is not what it should be. They don't reach their goal because they're not helping themselves. God's standing there ready to help. Elders are trying to help. Fellow Christians are trying to help. But their faith isn't what it ought to be because they're not helping themselves. So what does the context say about helping themselves? Well, first of all, here's how you can help yourself. Humble yourself. You say, well, I think of myself as humble. When I think that I have a better plan than God's plan, I'm not humble. What do I mean by that? Well, I might think, you know what? I know God says I ought to attend and I ought to, to study and I ought to grow, but, but that's not what I'm going to do. I just have thought that I've got a better plan than God, and that means I'm arrogant. So what I need to do is just humble myself, bring myself back down to the ground, verses 5 and 6. What else can I do? I can pray. That's why verse 7 is talking about cast your cares upon him. You see, this burden that I'm trying to carry, that's getting in the way of my faith, I'm worried about so many things and I've got so much on my mind and and it's just weighting me down. It's because I think I have to handle it and I can't handle it better than anybody else and I think really I can handle it better than God because I hadn't talked to Him about that. Cast Him up on Him, pray to Him about that. You can help yourself by prayer. But that's not all. By being sober, as we've already mentioned, being calm, well-balanced, self-controlled, serious. Get serious about your faith. Some people are not serious. You say, well, I think I am. Well, let's illustrate that with health. Suppose I've got some health issues, and the doctor says, your, your heart's in bad shape, but we can fix this, but uh, you're going to have to be on an exercise program and a good diet. And I'm hitting the diet about 10%. And I'm hitting exercise about 15%. Would you say, you seem to be serious about this heart thing? Not really. Not really. See, I haven't got serious yet. And some people are that way with their faith. They're hitting their faith a little bit. They're going to church some. They're reading some. They're studying. They're praying some. But they're not serious about their faith. They're not serious. What else can you do? You can be watchful. You can be careful. You can be very careful in living the Christian life. Take, take care in going in the right direction. And then you resist. You fight the temptations. 
Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able, but God will, with each temptation, provide a way to escape. What does that mean? What that means is in every room of temptation, picture temptation as a room, you never get locked in a room where you can't find a door out. Sometimes we look at, at temptation as I'm in this room and I'm looking and, I, and I'm just trapped. That's all I could do. I couldn't do anything else. Oh, no. You didn't look for the door. There's a way to escape where you can resist. And so what I do is look for the door and take that door. So resist, fight temptations. So, you see, I can help myself. And I can help as well as God's helping and fellow Christians are helping and elders are helping. And so, yes, there is a goal that we have of what our faith ought to be. And yes, there is a foe, more than one foe, to our faith, but there are multiple friends to our faith. What's going on with your faith? How's your faith doing? Is it settled? Is it established? Is your faith what it ought to be? There's foes working against your faith in the one working the hardest to destroy your faith may be yourself. Are you doing that? There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?